Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is to be back together tonight uh, with our young adult family. And as we continue, as we dive in um, to another just great text in Second Peter, may you guide our time. May you fill us with your spirit. Um, may you guide me as I share. And may each of us leave tonight not just with head knowledge of what your word says, but with a heart desire to deepen in our love for Christ. Um, so guide us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Rebecca was born on January 19, 1946, in a small one-room log cabin in Little Pigeon River, Tennessee. To say her family was poor would be quite the understatement. She was born, when she was born, she wasn't delivered by a doctor, she was delivered by a missionary. And the family was so poor they couldn't pay the missionary with money, they gave him a sack of cornmeal. She was one of 12 kids. Mom stayed home and was often ill and was barely able to take care of all the kids. Dad was a a sharecropper and then eventually owned a very small tobacco farm. They struggled just to put food on the table. Rebecca was from the type of Appalachian family that you and I would likely never know anything about if it wasn't for her Uncle Bill. Uncle Bill saw Rebecca's natural talent for music at a young age. She could sing, so he gave her her first real guitar when she was eight years old. She picked it up like that and started to play and sing. He saw her talent. He pulled some strings down the road in Nashville and got her on her first live radio broadcast. And she was starting to gain some popularity, and they started writing songs together. And by the time she was 13, they co-wrote a song called Puppy Love. And then in 1966... They wrote a song together that became the BMI song of the year. Uncle Bill laid the foundation for her music career and became maybe one of the most famous country artists uh, in the history of the genre. It was just a couple of years ago that her Uncle Bill passed away. I just want to read what she wrote in his honor. I've lost my beloved Uncle Bill Owens. I knew my heart would break when he passed, and it did. I'll start this eulogy by saying I wouldn't be here if he hadn't been there. He was there, there in my young years to encourage me to keep playing guitar, to keep writing my songs, to keep practicing my singing. And he was there to help me build my confidence, standing on stage where he was always standing behind me or close beside me with this big old red Gresh guitar. He was there to take me around to all of the local shows to get me my first job on the Cass Walker show. He took me back and forth to Nashville through the years and walked up and down the streets with me, knocking on doors to get me signed up to labels or publishing companies. It's really hard to say or know for sure what all you owe somebody for your success. But I can tell you for sure that I owe Uncle Billy an awful lot. If you're an avid country music fan, you probably know who I'm talking about. I used her middle name. Dolly Rebecca Parton. You probably know her as Dolly Parton. And if you're a country music fan, please enjoy this moment. This is the only nod I will ever give to country music. (laughs) But I want you to think for a moment of the gift that Dolly received from her Uncle Bill. She received the gift of a guitar, but she received the priceless gift of investment and time and, and having somebody pull the right strings to get the right connections, to get her in front of the right people and writing songs together. If it wasn't for the foundation that was laid for Uncle Bill, you and I would not know the name 
Dolly Parton. But even though the foundation was laid, Dolly had to choose. Was she going to open her mouth and sing? Was she going to build on the foundation that her uncle laid? Or was she just going to say, whatever, I don't really care? The gift that you and I have received through Christ is far greater than the gift of a jumpstart to a musical career. We know Christ, we've received the greatest gift, the gift of faith. Because if you've turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, then you've been given the greatest imaginable gift. Remember our text from two weeks ago. Remember everything that God does. He gave us the gift of faith. He's called us. He's given us his precious and very great promises. He's given us everything that we need to live a life of godliness. That's the foundation. But in our text tonight, we get to build on the foundation of faith. And our text outlines the how. How do we build on the foundation? And then the why. Why do we build on the foundation of faith? But I think it's important for us to begin with a caveat. We have to understand who Peter is writing to. We have to understand his audience. As we look at the text tonight, he's writing to genuine believers in Christ. He's writing to people who've turned away from their sin and trusted in Christ for their salvation. And if you're here tonight, and if you don't yet know Jesus, you don't believe in him as your Lord and Savior, you haven't turned and trusted in him, I'm so glad that you're here. And I hope that being by, by being part of the young adult family, you'll understand, you'll come to realize that there's nothing better than knowing Jesus and living for Jesus. But a text like tonight is filled with a list of things that you and I do. And if you don't know Jesus, I don't want you to take the list and just start cleaning up your life, because <laughs> that's not the point. We start by building on the right foundation, building on the foundation of faith, a belief in Jesus, and then we start working on the character, the attributes in our life. I don't want anyone to treat the message tonight like moral therapeutic preaching, just trying to clean up our life without first understanding that we have to build on the right foundation. Now, our text tonight is so deeply connected to our passage from two weeks ago. So as I start reading, I'm not going to start in verse 5. I'm actually going to start two verses earlier in verse 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Peter that's where we're going to be tonight. I'll start in verse 3. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. It says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption of the world that's in the world because of sinful desire. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ." We talked about verse 3 and 4 last week. Look at the start of verse 5. For this very reason, that directs our attention back to verses 3 and 4. 
we have everything that we need to live a life of godliness. We can cling to his precious and very great promises because he's given us everything we need, because he's given us the gift of faith, then we can start building on the foundation of faith. The way that the Greek works in verse 5 is a little bit complicated, but we've got to understand what he's saying because that forms the foundation of our text. What he's saying is that the word faith, faith is the foundation of the rest of the things that follow. And again, we learned two weeks ago that faith is a gift. The ability to believe, the ability to trust in Christ is a gift from God, not something we earn, not something that we deserve. The foundation of faith is a gift, something that God gives to us. We can't manufacture it. So once we have the foundation of faith, a genuine belief in Christ, then we get to add to that foundation the virtues that Peter lists. And actually, the the English translation, add, is, is really weak. It's more like supply generously, to supplement. Make every effort, combined with the Greek word to add, carries the weight of, of hard work, of sweat and tears. After Peter gives us a list of things that God does in verses 1 through 4, then in verse 5, he starts giving us a list of the things that we do to build on the foundation of faith. It's the difference between salvation and sanctification. Two big church words, but we have to understand what they mean because that's the paradigm through which we have to view this text. Salvation, God does everything. It's a gift. When we believe in Christ, we're responding to the gift of salvation with faith and with repentance. Salvation is a a one-time thing when we cross over from darkness into life. But then there's sanctification. Sanctification is everything that follows after salvation. Yes, we're, we're passive in our salvation. The only thing you and I bring to the table of our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. But our sanctification, sanctification is just a fancy word that means looking more like Jesus, growing to look more like Jesus. It what happen, it's what happens after our salvation. And it's a team effort between the Holy Spirit who's inside of us if we know Christ, and our human spirit working in tandem to grow to make us look more like Christ. Sanctification, I wish that it looked like this, but it doesn't. If you've been a Christian longer than a week, then you know that sanctification looks a little bit like this, doesn't it? It looks sometimes like one or two steps forward and one step back, but the goal is that our trajectory over time is that we're growing to look more like Christ. We are anything but passive in our sanctification even though we simply respond to the gift of salvation with faith, with belief. And it's amazing that God has given us everything that we need to live a life of godliness. So even as we look at this text, as we look at the virtues tonight, we're not on our own. Because we know Christ, if you know him, then he's given us his spirit who empowers us to walk the walk that he desires of us. So as we look at the list it's not a progressive stepladder. We don't start with virtue, and, and then once we master virtue, then, then we get to work on knowledge, and then once we master knowledge, then we work, get to work on self-control. No, we get to work on all of these virtues, all of these character traits at the same time. So the first principle tonight is how do we build on the foundation of faith? Um, and then we're going to work through, uh, I just have a, an action step under each of the virtues that Peter lists in our text. He says, supplement your faith with virtue. It's a word that means moral excellence. Quite simply, be a good person. Live a righteous life. To put it in modern language, sounds like this. 
don't be a jerk. That's what it means to live a virtuous life, a morally excellent life. Now, if we're honest, it's easy to come off as a jerk sometimes, and then we just make excuses for it. It sounds like this. I'm sorry, I just didn't have my coffee today. Or, yeah, sorry, our two-month-old was up all night screaming. Or, it's not a big deal. She's had it coming for the last three weeks. Or, uh, he deserved it. Did you see how he treated me earlier in that meeting? It's not a big deal. I was just showing him some tough love. Peter's saying that Christians should be the kindest, most gracious people on the planet. But as we look around at the evangelical community over the last two years, do you feel like that's the reputation that the church has developed in our country? I wish. Unfortunately, the church has often developed the reputation within the last couple of years of being harsh and mean-spirited. I hope that doesn't describe us. Sure, you can have a political position, but we don't have to be a jerk about it. Yes, we have the opportunity or the option to use social media, but please don't be a Facebook warrior. I don't know a single person that has ever had their mind changed through an incendiary comment or Facebook post. We need to practically practice kindness. That's the first virtue that Peter builds on top of the foundation of faith. The second is knowledge. There's two different Greek words for knowledge used within our text, even though it's translated the same way. We'll get to the, the deeper knowledge in a little bit, but this isn't a special knowledge. This is a basic knowledge, the Greek word gnosis. It's a knowledge that's rooted in the understanding of God and his word that leads to practical application. It's not just a, a head knowledge, but godly wisdom, knowing how to apply the knowledge about God to our life. That's our second principle. The second how is be a good student. Be a good student. The single best way for us to be a good student is to spend time in God's Word, to read it, to meditate on it, to memorize it, to talk with others about it. If we want to know God, then we have to be in His Word. We have to be students of Scripture, but not just be hearing, hearers of the Word only, but doers as well, taking the Word and applying it to our life and asking hard questions. How does this influence life? How does this influence work, my school, my family, my prayer life? Another way that you and I can grow in knowledge is by being here on a Monday night. This is not a church service. So by you being here tonight, I'm assuming that you're plugged into a great church on Sunday mornings, which means that if you're here today, you're at church yesterday, you're getting at least two messages a week. That's a great way for us to grow in knowledge. And in the world that we live in, we have access to teaching from all around the world. We have access to incredible ways, free resources to grow in our knowledge and understanding of God, from theology podcasts to online classes to book studies. We can buy any book basically that we want, and it can be delivered to our iPad in a second. We have access, but are we taking advantage of the resources that God's given us? There's many ways we can grow in our knowledge of God. Well, you don't think what I'd like to do is looking at the list. I'd like to skip over self-control and go right to steadfastness, um, but I probably can't do that, can I? <laughs> you and I live in a Disney generation. We grew up on Disney. And the mantra of the movies that I watched growing up, maybe they're the same ones that you watched, sound a little bit like this. Just follow your heart. 
just be whoever you want to be. Just shoot for the stars. There's songs about it, aren't there? But when we unpack the worldview underneath that, it's actually significant. The worldview underneath it says, if you want to find truth, all you have to do is look in the mirror. You want to discover what's true? Look at how you feel. And whatever you feel is true. So then follow your heart and you can be whoever you want to be as long as you're not getting in somebody else's way, as long as you're not hurting somebody else, whatever that means, then you can do whatever you want. You can be whoever you want to be. Don't let anyone stop you. That's the world we live in. Take it a step farther. That's how we have the cultural shift. That's how we have the sexual revolution that we have in our world today because truth comes from here. It sounds like this. How dare you tell me who I can and cannot love? How dare you tell me how I can and cannot live my life? Because truth comes from here. Follow your heart. Is that biblical? No, actually, this is biblical. Don't follow your heart. That's our next principle. (laughs) Don't follow your heart. Love what the prophet, I believe it's Isaiah, says. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Well, that's encouraging. Thank you. Appreciate it. Or how about the Apostle Paul? The great Apostle Paul, the greatest evangelist, the greatest missionary who's ever walked the planet. And what does he say at the end of Romans 7? I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do, and who's going to save me? Wait, Paul? thought you're perfect. No. The prophet's saying, Paul's saying, we can't always follow our heart. And if you and I followed our heart in every situation in our life, it would lead us down a terrifying path. So we don't need subjective reality. We need objective truth, where we can look at the desires in our heart and filter it through the lens of God's word and say, is this desire in line with God's desire, or is this in line with worldly desire? And that's self-control. Self-control is being able to look at the desires in our heart and discern, is this something God wants, or is it the opposite? Self-control, then, is an exercise in self-denial, saying no to what Sam's heart wants and saying yes to what God wants. And if I had to guess, all of us have room for growth in the area of self-control. If you've arrived in this area, I would love to talk to you. I would, because I have not. But there's a reason it's in the list, because it's so essential for us as Christ followers not to follow every pull of our heart, That can feel irresistible. The pull towards sin, the the pull towards worldliness, towards temptation, it can feel like, how how can I even say no to this right now? But go back to verse three. What did Peter say? He has given us some of the things that we need to live a, a life of godliness. Is that what it says? No, he's given us everything we need to live a life of godliness, which includes living a life of self control.
Self-control, it starts in our mind. The things that we think about become the things that we desire. The things we desire become the things that we do. So if we're not very controlled about the things that we think about or the things that we let into our mind, then it's going to influence our desire and influence our actions. We have to be careful about where we let our minds go at self-control. Self-control includes the tongue, watching what we say to others, being careful with biting sarcasm. The excuse, I'm just a blunt person, I'm a straight shooter, can often be an excuse for not being that self-controlled with our tongue. Self-control, it might mean denying the snooze button another click or turning off Netflix after one episode instead of watching four. Self-control, it might mean leaving our cell phone in our pocket instead of pulling it out mid-conversation. Self-control means saying no to certain foods and saying yes to exercise. The problem is that self-control applies to literally every area of our life, and there's no way around it. It's hard, but God has given us everything that we need to be people who are self-controlled, who don't follow every desire of our hearts. The next is steadfastness. Maybe a word that you and I use a little more often would be endurance or perseverance. If you're a runner or if you've ever been a runner or you can imagine what it would like to be a runner, the easiest mile is always mile one. When I was a senior in college, I ran the longest race of my life and it will be the only half marathon that I will ever run. And training went well, and, um, you know, a friend and I trained for months getting up to the race, and we were, we were ready to go. Um, and that first mile, oh, it just felt amazing. Mile two felt amazing. Mile six, mile seven, I was doing great. And then we got to mile 11, and I'm pretty sure my leg fell off, seriously. I was in so much pain. Ugh. I don't, I don't know how I finished that race. That's what Peter's talking about. Endurance is not running well on mile one. It's not running well on mile two. It's not even running well on mile seven. It's running well on mile 11. When everything inside of us says, throw in the towel, this isn't worth it. When everything outside of us says, what are you doing? Is being a Christian really worth it? Endurance. So our next principle is run a marathon, not a sprint. If you've been a Christ follower longer than a couple months, my guess is you've realized this to be true. So when you become a Christian, sometimes there can be this, this fire, this excitement to dig into God's word. It's mile one or two of the race but the day's going to come when that desire's going to wane. Don't worry, you didn't do something wrong. Don't worry, the problem isn't you. That's why Peter includes the word endurance. Because are we going to feel like waking up in the morning and reading the Bible every day? No. Are we going to feel like praying every day? No. Are we going to feel like going out of our comfort zone and sharing our faith? But part of the Christian life means engaging our heart in the disciplines, engaging our heart in these character traits, even when we don't feel like it. That is endurance. 
God cares not just about the start and the finish, but the middle of the race too. We've got to run with perseverance. The next trait is godliness. It's simple. It's living a godly life, a life that God would want us to live. And, and we think about a picture of what it means to live a godly life. Hopefully there's one person that comes to mind, Jesus. Live like Jesus. That's our next principle. There's so many different ways that you and I can live like Jesus. We could talk about it for the next 30 minutes, so I'm not going to highlight any now. Instead, we discover what it looks like to live like Jesus by spending time in his word, by reading the gospels, by diving in and, and knowing Christ through what his word tells us. Or we could go back to 1998, my favorite thing about the late 90s and early 2000s was the bracelets we used to wear. You know what I'm talking about? WWJD. If you were born after 2000, you have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> what would Jesus do? You remember that? And we'd wear it on our wrist, and then we'd look down, and um, I wonder if my life would look different today if I asked that question more. If I asked, okay, let me take a step back and just ask, in this moment, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus respond? I wonder how different our lives would look. That's this principle, that's this character, is godliness, living like Jesus. The next is brotherly affection. It could be translated brotherly love. That's literally what the word means in Greek. It's a Greek word that all of you know. It's the Greek word Philadelphia. Um, yes, that's the same word as the city in our country, which is ironic because Philadelphia is not known for being a very loving city, but that's beside the point. That's the word Peter uses here. It's a picture of an intentional, meaningful, generous relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the ways that the world will see our love for Christ is how we love one another. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 13. And when we have love for one another, then we're quick to share with one another. We're quick to be generous with one another, with our, times, with our time, our talents, and our treasures. Brotherly love is always demonstrated through generosity. That's our next how, is be generous. Be generous. There are countless ways that you and I could be generous with one another or generous with people in the community, but I have one application for all of us tonight, uh, which is going to take uh, each of our small groups. We have a challenge for every small group this year to do a service project together, to come up with a way that you can serve the community or serve brothers and sisters in Christ, to, to band together, and maybe it's a couple hours on a Saturday afternoon or a couple hours on a weeknight, just a one-time thing, and finding a way to serve together to show that generosity with our time, with our talents, and with our treasures. Maybe it means uh, serving with the Bridge Street Mission, a great organization in our town that serves uh, some, of, uh, some of those in our community that might uh, be struggling. We had the same challenge or a similar challenge a year ago, and this, this one was my personal favorite. Um, Olgan Small Group last year, some of you guys are here tonight. When we gave the challenge, Olgan was gone and it was just his guys in the small group. So they thought, well, what can we do to, to serve our community? And they decided without telling Olgan, they were gonna show up at his house and rake all of his leaves. Um, and if you know Olgan, that would mortify him because he's, you know, he's a hard worker um, and he, he has the ability to you know, take care of things himself. And, um, but his guys said, no, we're gonna, we're gonna love you by serving you in a rake your leaves. I, I thought that was just a really cool uh, practical idea. Uh, from last year. And um, if you're in Olgan's group, he's not here tonight. Um, so 
but he might see it coming this time around. <laughs> the final attribute that Peter lists is hands down the most predictable. It's just translated love. It's the Greek word agape, often translated in unconditional love. Uh, Peter reminds us that love, it's not just a feeling, it's a virtue. Love isn't just a feeling, it's an action. Love's not just an emotion, love is a choice. And love is the highest virtue of the Christian life. Think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that faith, hope, and love, or end of chapter 12, I think, faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. That without love, (laughs) we just shouldn't show up. Love is the glue that holds the rest of this list together. We need to love unconditionally. That's our final principle tonight, love, or final how tonight, love unconditionally. I love that Peter doesn't just give us a list and then say, okay, Sam, go get to work. He takes a couple of verses to unpack the why, the motivation, the reason for engaging our hearts with the virtues that he has listed, the why. Uh, should we build on the foundation of our faith? And maybe a word picture uh, would be helpful to understand verse 8. Let me read verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a picture that maybe we can help uh, the verse make sense. A number of months ago, my in-laws purchased two pedal assist bikes. You ever ridden a pedal assist bike? It's pretty cool. They're kind of all the rage in the world right now. It's a bicycle that's battery powered, but it doesn't have a normal motor in it. To engage the engine, to engage the motor, you have to pedal. So as soon as you stop pedaling, then the bike stops working. And we were at a family camp with uh, my in-laws over the summer, and they had one of the bikes there, and they have a kid's seat on the back, and Matthias and I are just tearing around camp, and it had four modes. There's an eco mode, what a joke. <laughs> there was a, a tour mode, there was a sport mode, and a performance mode. And I started on eco. I was like, this is a joke. We went all the way to performance mode. And that thing just took off. It was crazy. But as soon as I stopped pedaling, you could feel the engine stop working. I think that's a picture for our sanctification. The Holy Spirit, if you know Christ, is inside of you, tabernacling, dwelling in you, who wants to do the work of sanctification in your life, who wants to grow you to make you look more like Christ, and he's just waiting for you to pedal. Look at that verse. If these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses a negative uh, to help us understand that if we're growing in these virtues— then we will be productive. It's really an agricultural word. We'll be fruitful in what? The knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hear the word knowledge again? It's not simple knowledge. It's not the Greek word gnosis. It's the Greek word epignosis. It's a deep knowledge, a special knowledge, that if these qualities are yours and are increasing, we're going to be more and more fruitful in our deep knowledge of Jesus. If these qualities are yours increasing, you're going to know Jesus more. That's the promise that we can take to the bank. It's what I call the pedal assist promise. That's the first why. Why do we build on the foundation of faith? Because if we pedal, the Holy Spirit will do that work in our life. That's the promise of verse 
8. But I can hear what some of you are saying. Actually, read it on your face. You're saying, yeah, it's not a promise, Sam. I've tried it. It doesn't work. I've been trying to read my Bible every day. I'm not feeling anything. Yeah, I've been trying to pray more, and I'm not growing. I even heard Brian talk at the camp out. He told me to start a prayer journal. I started a prayer journal, and I'm not feeling anything. It doesn't work. Two thoughts. First, I think often we have the wrong metric. We're looking for the wrong thing because we're looking for a feeling. We're looking for the warm fuzzies. We're looking for an experience. But that's not what God promises. He promises that if we engage in these virtues, then we're going to grow not in a feeling, not in an emotion, but in our deep abiding knowledge, our relationship with Jesus. It's an amazing promise. The reason that we engage in these disciplines and cultivate their virtues is because they become an avenue for a deeper relationship with Jesus, not an emotional, not a a warm, fuzzy sort of a way, but in a true and a deep sort of a way. Don't seek after the feeling, seek after Jesus. Maybe you've tried this. If you feel like you've tried this and, man, God didn't show up. Maybe you had the wrong expectations. Think of how learning a language works. Right before the Mexico trip every year, I try to download Duolingo. Anyone have Duolingo on their phone? Connor, when was the last time you used Duolingo? Okay, you're a better man than I. <laughs> nice job. Now, in, in you know, the story, my story here, not Connor's story, my story, Let's say that I use Duolingo for two hours a day. Oh, that'd be a lot on Duolingo. Two hours a day for the week leading up to the Mexico trip. Am I going to be fluent in Espanol? No, No. (laughs) I'm not. If you've ever learned a language, you know that it takes more than two hours a day for a week. I wonder sometimes in our sanctification, if we think, okay, if I read my Bible every day for the next week, then I'm going to see in an instrumental amount of change in my life. No, that's not how it works. It's long abiding change over time. We've got to look at months, even years, not in the days or weeks category. I think sometimes we throw in the towel just a little too quick. Don't forget about my 11. Don't forget about endurance. But Peter offers us a promise that if we're willing to keep peddling, then the Spirit will do a work in our life to grow our knowledge, our deep knowledge of Christ. Look at verse 9 from our text. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. Verse 9 and 10 clearly serve as an opposite for one another. And I'm comforted that in verse 9, Peter changes the tone and tense. He goes from second person to third person. He's not talking about his readers, his audience being nearsighted. He's just talking about people in general, probably the the false teachers that he's going to dive into in the next chapter. But he helps us understand that if someone lacks these qualities, they're nearsighted, they're blind, having forgotten 
their forgiveness. He reminds us that there's no neutral. Either we're moving forward or we're moving backward. Either, either we're pursuing Jesus or we're pursuing the world. Either we're cultivating a heart for God or a heart for ourselves. For someone who lacks these qualities, they're so nearsighted that they can't see the cross. It's like me forgetting my glasses. Can't see more than a couple feet in front of my face. That individual likely doesn't have the assurance of their salvation that they desire. Peter's not saying that they're unsaved. He's not saying that we earn our salvation by practicing these disciplines and cultivating these virtues. However, he's saying that when we grow in these virtues, it's like putting on a pair of glasses so that we can see our forgiveness, so that we can see the cross then we can grow in our assurance. Next week, we're going to zoom in on verses 8 and 9 and spend a whole night talking about assurance and how we can be sure of our salvation. But for now, we have to remember that when we pursue these qualities, we'll grow in our assurance, greater assurance. That's the second why for building on the foundation of faith. In this way, we'll confirm our calling. That's the word Peter used in verse 10. Two weeks ago, we talked about how we can consider our calling remembering that the only thing we bring to the salvation table is the sin that made it necessary. But tonight, we get to talk about confirming our calling by walking in the good works that God's prepared for us in advance to do. Should growing in assurance be the primary motivation for pursuing these virtues? No. Knowing Jesus is the primary motivation for pursuing these virtues. But assurance is a great byproduct of this wholehearted pursuit. And when we run the race with endurance and with faithfulness, in verse 11, Peter says, we'll gain an eternal reward. Look at verse 11. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the key word in that verse is richly. Peter's not saying that we earn our way into heaven by being obedient. No, he's saying that those who practice these virtues will receive a rich reward upon their entrance to eternity. That's our final why is eternal rewards, eternal rewards. The natural question is, okay, what does that look like? What are eternal rewards? What's that practically going to be like? The New Testament doesn't really give us a great picture practically of how that's going to play out in eternity. I don't know. We know there's rewards for obedience, not a way to earn our salvation, but us walking with faithfulness after our salvation will earn some type of reward in eternity. And are eternal rewards the primary motivation to grow in these virtues? No. Knowing Jesus is the primary motivation to grow in these virtues. But eternal rewards are, again, a great byproduct for that wholehearted pursuit. Friends, we have to understand that we've received the greatest imaginable gift if we know Christ, the gift of faith. Now, you and I have the opportunity to build on that foundation of faith that God's given us. Let's pray. Father, what a great challenge uh, from your word tonight. Um, we're comforted by the, the truths in the first couple verses in Second Peter that you've given us faith as a gift, that you've called us not by anything that we've done, but completely by your purpose and grace, that you've given us everything that we need to live a life of godliness, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but because of your grace. So even as we begin building or continue building on the foundation of faith that you've instilled in us, 
teach us to be reliant on the Spirit, to not simply just try to do things on our own power, but understanding that this is a, a team effort, our human spirit working in tandem with the Holy Spirit, who does that work of transformation in our heart. So as we spend some time dialoguing in our small groups tonight, we ask you might guide our time, allow us not just to be hearers of the word, but be people who obey the word, apply the word, live the word, growing daily in our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.